You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. So in our epic series, we've been tracing these epic stories about an epic promise that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 to a man named Abraham. And were you around when we kicked off this series at the beginning of the summer and we found that God made these four promises to Abraham. Number one, he promised to bless him, which was epic in the first place because he didn't deserve to be blessed. He deserved to be cursed just like all of us. We were living under the curse. God said, I'm going to reverse the curse. I'm going to bless you. And then secondly, he said, I'm going to give you a land. We affectionately refer to that as the promised land. Get it? It was land that was promised. We call it the promised land. So the promised land. And so the third fold promise was that he was going to, through his descendants, become a great nation. And through Abraham, all the nations of the world were going to be blessed. Even the nation of Granger, Indiana, and Buchanan, Michigan, and St. Joseph, Michigan, and Elkhart, all those nations were going to be blessed by what God was going to do through the family of Abraham. And you remember the promise gets to its peak last time we were together, and we found that the people had entered the land, and they'd received the promised land. The people were in the land. The king was in office. It was the son of David, Solomon. He built the temple, and uh, God gave Solomon incredible wisdom. So we had a king in office. We had wisdom in his head. We had people in the land. We had money in the bank because there was just gold and silver and cedar and horses everywhere. And then the best part of the whole thing was... There was glory in the temple as God's presence saturated the place of worship and God was accessible to his people there in the temple in Jerusalem. That's where we left off the story last time we were together. And um, today we're going to find out that even though that was the pinnacle, I got to tell you, that is the high point of the Old Testament. Glory in the temple. What we're going to find is we peak and we start to descend down the other side. And the, here's the big idea of the message this morning. Um, a divided heart leads to a divided kingdom. A divided heart leads to a divided kingdom. Now, as we've learned, every time we open our Bibles to a page of Scripture, we're reading not only the story of Abraham, not only the story of King Solomon, we're reading the story of King Jesus. And even though we don't see the name of Jesus on the page, we know this is the unfolding epic story of Jesus. But if I do my job right and you do your job right, you're not only going to see Solomon's kingdom and Christ's kingdom, you're going to see your kingdom. Did you know you have a kingdom? Turn to your neighbor and say, I have a kingdom. You're like, I don't think I have a kingdom. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Your kingdom is that for which you are responsible. You are part of the kingdom. You have a brain. You're responsible for your brain. You're responsible for your thoughts. You're responsible for your influence. And here it gets outside of you. If you're married, your kingdom involves your marriage. If you have children, it involves your family. If you have a business, that's part of your kingdom, part of your influence, friendships, extended family, your net worth, your time. Do you see all of this is your kingdom and your king me and your kingdom? The, key, the question is, how's your kingdom going? And what we're going to learn today is Solomon's kingdom began to crumble when 
Solomon's heart began to crumble. The kingdom became divided when Solomon had a divided heart. And we're going to find out that there are actually seven signs when your kingdom starts to crumble. How's your kingdom doing this morning? Let me show you what happened to Solomon's kingdom. We're beginning in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. If you're ready, say go. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. I grew up in Oklahoma. And when, when the storm clouds started to gather and it got really dark and the winds began to swirl, we would hear off in the distance tornado sirens warning us things were not going well in Oklahoma at that point. If there were tornado sirens in Israel, they would have been going off in verse one. Can I read that again? King Solomon loved many foreign women. I don't know about you, I have trouble loving one well. And he loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. I guess she got special treatment because she was Pharaoh's daughter. And then it lists categories of women, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidona, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Look at these sad words. Solomon clung to these in love. Well, here's the first sign your kingdom's about to crumble. You love more than one lover. And this was a warning sign that things were about to go incredibly, epically bad in this kingdom. He loved many foreign women. And Solomon knew better. Solomon knew the opening pages of the Bible where God created one man and he brought that one man, one woman. Notice he did not bring one man, many women. He brought one man, one woman. And God's plan from the opening pages of human history is one man is to spend a, one lifetime with one woman loving her well. That's God's design. And Solomon knew that. And if that wasn't enough, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God included a special section for what kings are to do. And this is what he said. He said, your kings in Israel shall not have many horses, much gold, or many wives. Well, if you were to take time to read back in chapter 10, do you know what that's a chronicle of? It's a chronicle of Solomon accumulating many horses, much gold, and many wives. Solomon knew he was not supposed to do this. By the way, is this a shock to you? If you've come to a Christian church, we have a Christian sexual ethic. Is it, does, does anybody know what this is? The, the, the plan from the beginning is that sex is reserved for married people. If you are a Christian, you don't have to choose to be a Christian. You, you don't have to, but if you are a Christian, you don't get a choice about what your sexual ethic will be. If you're going to surrender to Jesus, put yourself under his authority, then you are going to 
reserve sex for marriage, one woman, one lifetime, and statistics bear out. Married people have better sex more often than single people do. God's plan works. And so Solomon knew this. As a matter of fact, the, the, some of the most extensive teaching we have on marriage and sex we find in an Old Testament book in our Bible called Proverbs. Let me show you what some of the, the sayings are in Proverbs around this topic about loving women. Here's a verse. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. How many wives do you see in that verse? One. Rejoice in one wife. It is singular. And you're supposed to find one and love one and be happy about one for a lifetime until she's no longer the wife of your youth. She's now your, the same wife in, in your youth is the wife when you're old. That's always God's plan. We find that in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 5, 18. By the way, does anybody know who wrote the book of Proverbs? Who? Wait a minute. The guy that loved many wives? Um, wait a minute. Look down here in verse 3. He had 700 wives who were Disney princesses. I mean, these were not just average women. These were princess women here. And that didn't satisfy him, so it says he got 300 cucum uh, concubines <laughs> to go along with the 700 wives in the Disney princesses. Now listen, I went to public school, but that is close to a thousand women that he had to love and love well. Why did he have a thousand women? The answer is simple. Because 999 were not enough to fill the hole in his heart that God never intended to fill with women or sex. And Solomon knew better. He knew that God's plan, one woman, one man, one lifetime, rejoice in the wife of your youth. He even said this in Proverbs chapter 6, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. We're told that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And yet the wisest man who ever lived did the dumbest thing a man could do by loving more than one lover. And you know what it did? It divided his heart, it destroyed him, and it destroyed the kingdom. A thousand women. Now, a lot of guys in our culture would look at that and say, way to go. Trophy wives. Awesome. Now listen, I, I could tell you, the, the seat that I sit on, the occupation that I have given myself to, um, I, I don't look at Solomon as a champion. I pity him. Because I have seen the train wreck that comes by trying to divide your heart and filling a hole in your heart with things God never intended to satisfy, namely sex, love from other women or other men, depending on your gender, apply it to yourself. A thousand different women. Can you imagine the insecurity, the
the jealousy, the bitterness Solomon created in every one of those 1,000 wives as each one of them only got one thousandth of his heart? Can you imagine the contention and the strife in that home as he dishonored those women? He must have known something about that because again in Proverbs chapter 21 he wrote this verse. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome woman. If you are a man, this is not the time to amen in church. <laughs> you, think, you think Solomon knew what it was like to live among some quarreling women? Ten verses later, he amended that verse and wrote it this way. It's better to live in a desert land. Housetop, that's still too close. Desert land, that another zip code, that's better than to live with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. Question, why were the women that he knew fretful? Why were they fearful? Why were they embittered? Why were they jealous? Why were they fretful? That's what a divided heart in a husband does to a woman who doesn't have his whole heart. And we read these verses like, that's, nobody does that. I mean, nobody came to church today with a thousand women. I mean, you may be in your second marriage or your third marriage or your fifth marriage. And by the way, if you are, hey, we just want to make sure that this is your last marriage. If, if, like, get on the program going forward here. And if you get on God's plan, God has a way of redeeming all of the crumbling kingdoms you have. But understand this, even though nobody here today brought a thousand wives to church, Almost everybody here has a screen in your pocket. And some of you spent the week looking at dozens, hundreds, maybe a thousand pornographic images to try to fill a hole in your heart with things God never intended to satisfy. Listen. The story of Solomon is put in Scripture to warn us that there is not another human being on the planet that can occupy the space in your heart God intended for him. And you will go on search after search after search. And if you keep trying to plug in relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, parent, child, you keep trying to plug that stuff in there, you are never going to be satisfied and your kingdom is going to crumble. And listen, if you're here today and you've tried to feed your sexual appetite by images that you're seeing or even relationships or sexual activity, listen, the reason it never satisfied is because God never intended it to satisfy. And you're going to need the help and incredible humility. Go to a, another brother or sister, men with men, women with women, and humble yourself and say, I'm trapped, I'm caught, didn't intend to be here, my kingdom's crumbling, I need help, I need accountability. Come to one of the pastors, go to somebody in your small group, go to another friend and we will help you. This is a battle for everyone and only those who have enough humility to admit that can gain victory over it. If not, your kingdom's going to crumble because God designed marriage to be the place where you give your whole heart to one person for one lifetime and you never should give your body to a person who is not willing to give you their whole heart, their whole life, 
their whole person to you in a one-lifetime relationship. God wants your whole heart to go to a wife or a husband. God wants your whole heart to come to Him. And that's why the second sign your kingdom's about to crumble is this. Your heart turns away from the Lord to other gods. That's what happened to Solomon. Look at verse 4. And when Solomon was old, sadly, he did well as a young person, and he was very foolish as an old person. And when he was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. We read that story and we get the image of these wives bringing these little statues. And and Solomon, maybe to appease them, bows down and worships them in some way. And and we look at that as that's so primitive. And there's probably people that still do that over in Africa or Nepal somewhere. And I'm so glad that we live in America where we're so much more advanced in our idolatry. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we don't regularly bow down to statues. Our worship usually takes place in shopping malls or stadiums or theaters or on golf courses or hunting ranges. Can I, can I keep going on here? We bow down to the idols of sex and success and sports and academics. Anything can be an idol. You can, the human heart has an incredible ability to be an idol factory. So what is your idol? An idol is anything you think is more important than God. You say, I don't think that anything's more important than God. Then why aren't you at worship every time the doors are open? Something's more important. Anything can be an idol. Uh, Anything that consumes your thinking, anything that consumes your calendar, your time, anything that consumes your money can be your idol. An idol is anything that you seek to give you what only God can provide. And an idol is anything that you think you can't live without. Let me ask you this. Is there any person, any possession, or any place that if it was taken away from you, you would feel like your life is not worth living? That's your idol. And if it's caught your heart, it's turned your heart away from God. You say, no, I I still, I still love God. I still worship God. Yes, so did Solomon. It was not that those idols replaced God. It's that simply he worshiped God and the hundreds of idols those, those foreign women brought to him. And we do the same thing. Those idols have to be turned from, repented of. They have to be replaced by a wholehearted affection, adoration of Jesus as the primary person who gets everything and everything else falls in line. I don't know about you, but um, when we turn the calendar to August and the temperature drops, as it always does in Michigan, I always just feel like, hey, you know what's coming next? Football. 
Am I the only one? Am I the only one that, that struggles with this idol football? Okay, good. So, so I have Scott, an, an 11-year-old Scott. He started his football career this week. And so he, he went out for Granger Rocket football, and, and I'm, I'm just, I'm having a great time. I'm like, you know, shoving the helmet on him, putting the pads on, and I'm like reliving my 11-year-old football experience and just having a great time. But right before I sent him out on the field, I, I grabbed him by the face mask and I pulled him in. And I said, look, football's good. Football is not going to be God. Because that's a struggle for me. Some of your things, football of God, that's silly stuff. Like, why are you a football of God? Let's go shopping. <laughs> All right, so what, what is your God? I mean, it's, it's, it, the human heart can turn anything into an idol. And so we have to make sure that our hearts are not turned away to other gods with little G's. Little gods with little G's can steal your heart. And if it does, you know what's going to happen? Your kingdom's going to crumble. Here's the third sign your kingdom's about to crumble. You reject the counsel of older men. I thought I might get an amen out of an older man. You want another run at that? You reject the counsel of older men. I just wanted to see who the older men were. Thank you for identifying yourself as an old man. So go all the way down to the end of the chapter here. Verse 43 is the last verse in chapter 11. And so things are starting to unwind. I mean, it's going downhill. And we finally get to the end of chapter 11. Verse 43 says, and Solomon slept with his fathers. You understand that's not talking about a nap. That's the Bible's way of saying he died. So he died and he was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Now, I got to make sure you're, you're following along with me here. Catch on here. You got to follow some of the details of the story or it's not going to work for you. Okay. So who was Solomon's dad? Answer, King David. King David has Solomon. Solomon's son is Rehoboam. Rehoboam now becomes the king of Israel. Everybody got that? Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Rehoboam's king. So in chapter 12, we're introduced to another character. I want you to see it in verse 3. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam. Time out. All right, so we got Rehoboam. Who is he? King. And now we're introduced to Jeroboam, which makes this incredibly hard for the preacher to keep straight because they rhyme, don't they? I thought about calling them Ray and Jay, but that's cheesy, so I'm not going to do that. So it's Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Who is Jeroboam? Let me give you the background. Jeroboam was one of the construction project managers for King Solomon. He was a faithful, hardworking dude. And so when Solomon's dead, Jeroboam is glad because Solomon was a hard guy to work for. So Jeroboam seizes the opportunity and comes to Rehoboam and makes an appeal. That appeal is found in verse 4. Here's the appeal. Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten up. Lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Ever, ever been in a job like that? It's like, man, I'm so glad the boss got fired. Maybe the next guy will be a little easier on us. And this happens with every presidential election, too. We're tired of that guy, and man, we, we should get somebody fresh in the office, and then pretty soon we find out, oh, man, this guy's worse than the, the other guy. It's exactly the story that's going on here. So Jeroboam makes the appeal to Rehoboam, 
Rehoboam says, I will take it under advisement. In verse 6, we read that King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men. Good news or bad news? That's good news. He went, he called the committee together. Hey, what do you guys think we ought to do? In verse 8, we found out what he did. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men. Good news or bad news? Bad news. He took counsel with the young men. Then it says this, who had grown up with him. How are the guys doing that you grew up with? Um, something not so good. But those are the guys that are in his ear. And so he goes and listens to the guys that he'd grown up with. And I don't think they were actually that grown up at this point. But um, he'd grown up with and stood before him. Down in verse 13, we'll find out his decision. So he's listened to the old men. He's listened to the young men. Verse 13, And the king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel of the old men that had given him. And he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy. I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline with you with scorpions. I don't want to be disciplined by a whip or a scorpion. Both sound bad, but don't, don't add scorpions to the whips. What did he do? He rejected the counsel of the old men. The old men said, lighten up. They'll serve you. They'll be better. They'll produce more for you. But he rejected that counsel. If you're here today and you are of the younger generation, and by the way, everybody here is younger than somebody except one. It's just the way it works when you're in a group this size. So everybody's got something to learn. But if you are a young man and the only person you listen to is your same age, your kingdom's about to crumble. You need to regularly put yourself in a council of older men. Now, if you're sitting there feeling justified because you're 70 years old, you don't get it. It's, you, the quality of your counsel is not measured by how many years you've lived. The quality of your counsel is measured by how many miles you have walked with God. And if you have walked many miles with God, you can be a young man and counsel like an old man. And so we need both. If you're an older man and you're not putting yourself in the traffic of younger men and making yourself available to the younger generation, you are missing out on what God wants you to do as an old man. And obviously I'm talking to older women as well. Uh, translate the gender as it fits your, your, your need in this season. But we have to put ourselves in the counsel of older men. Um, I turned 50 this summer. Yeah, I was expecting more like shock and awe. You know, as you look at this and you're like, that's 50? I mean, come on. And so I didn't get it that. So anyway, I, I'm, re I'm recognizing I'm, I'm becoming one of these older men. And I'm, I'm actually finding more and more of my time is spent with younger men that we, that, that 
I can hand to them what's been handed to me. I'm loving what's happening today. I'm loving what happened the last two weeks. Tyler Holder preaching right here. He's what, 30? And then Micah, he's like 31. And they filled the pulpit. They did a great job. And we're raising these guys up. And, and now I'm watching these guys mentor younger men. Uh, you got all these 18, 19, 20-year-old Life Action team members up here. And we got old man Micah teaching them how to lead worship, you know. And it's like, this is, this is the way it's supposed to happen. This is the way it's supposed to happen, and you're a part of that. And so make sure you don't reject the counsel of older men. Make sure you go and seek the counsel of older men. If not, your kingdom's going to crumble. Here's the fourth sign your kingdom's going to crumble. You use people rather than love people. We've already read it here in verse 14. He said, my dad disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. Why did he do that? Because he thought it would work. He really thought the way to motivate people was through pain. You need a, you need a little more sting in your step. And so I think Rehoboam sincerely wanted to be a good leader. But he made the fatal flaw that leaders make. He realized he was responsible not just to lead people, but to love people. He realized that it was a tough job, and yet he didn't understand that as a husband, as a parent, as a teacher, a coach, an employer, a boss, or a pastor, you've got to care for the people in your charge, even if it's harder for you. You have to care for the people God has given you to lead. And if you don't, they will rebel against you. They will rebel against you. As a matter of fact, look down in verse 19. It says, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Did his motivational tactics work? No, it pushed them further away from him. Again, having all these life action teams in the building, we've been having a great time getting to know um, each one of them. It's it's, the the guy playing the electric guitar up here. His name's Hudson. I traveled with his mom. Okay, so I'm I'm getting old and and all this, but it was brought back all kinds of memories. I remember with Hudson's mom and I in 1993 being on our first life action team. I did not sign up to be a singer in life action. And you have to understand, back in the day, um, life action wasn't as cool as it is right now. And I was back in kind of the era where life action was learning that uh, electric guitars can be ordained of God to bring great worship. And so uh, uh, this was back before. It was more like eight-part harmony to accompaniment tracks and look-alike outfits in formation. And uh, that was not cool. And, and, and yet three days before I joined life action, I was going to be the youth revivalist and teach teenagers and all that on the road. And three days before I, I came, they said, we need male singers. I'm like, well, I don't really, that's not really what God, I'm a seminary graduate. I mean, I've done some singing, but that, that era is over. I just want to teach the Bible. They're like, no, we're really having a hard time finding male singers. I said, there's a reason for that. Um, have you listened to what you're singing? Anyway, I, I finally just, uh, I was like, okay, Lord, coming to serve. I'll, I'll do whatever. And so I didn't realize that it was going to be like 12 hours a day rehearsal of the same song into uh, the, the eighth month on the road. And so the problem with that was that our particular music director, who shall remain nameless in this illustration, uh, the, the music director had a leadership style much like Rehoboam. 
he brought whips and scorpions to the rehearsal, okay, to try to motivate us to sing better. And I remember this one particular rehearsal, um, one of the guys on our team, he just, he, he, just, he crossed his arms and he said, I'm not singing. And the rest of us said, well, if Eddie's not singing, we're not singing either. And so we sat down and, and the, the leader came in. He's like, no, you're going to sing. He's like, Eddie said, we'll sing on one condition. If you can tell us one thing we've done well this year. Because it had been eight months and there had not been one compliment about any degree of anything we had done right all year long. And Eddie said, I challenge you. No, just go ahead and say it. Just, just say something. Just say we're breathing. We're alive. Just, we show up every day, you know. And, and, he, and the leader said, no, I'm not going to do that. Why can't you tell us something right? He said, if I tell you you did something right, you'll quit. You'll quit trying. Like, dude, we quit trying seven months ago under your leadership tactic, okay? You understand as a parent, as a coach, as a husband, as an employer, you have to care for the people under your care. It is not about your kingdom. It is about God's kingdom and God loves these people. And the only way you're taking them with you is if you if they sense that you love them in the process. Here's the sixth sign your kingdom's about to crumble. You value control over unity. If you'd rather maintain control than maintain unity, you're going to lose both. And that's what happened. Listen, every leadership responsibility is weighty. Look down here at verse 20. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. Now, don't miss what just happened. Do you see what just happened? The kingdom just split. The kingdom just divided into two different kingdoms. North and south. We had King Rehoboam that was king over the whole thing. Jeroboam makes the appeal. His appeal is rejected. Jeroboam rebels. He takes 10 of the 12 tribes and becomes king of those. Now we have a divided kingdom because of the rebellion. He said there was none that followed the house of David. In other words, nobody followed King Rehoboam but the tribe of Judah only. So what we have here is we have this divided kingdom, all because Rehoboam was more concerned with maintaining control than he was with maintaining unity. And this is what leadership does. If you've ever felt it, um, this is what it does. Leadership exposes your weaknesses. I, I thought I was a really good leader until I planted a church. And do you know what's been happening for the last eight years? The pressure and the responsibility of the leadership exposes your weaknesses and everybody sees it. Nobody would even know what my weaknesses are if I wasn't your pastor. I don't know what your weaknesses are because you're not my pastor. But if you were my pastor, I would find them. <laughs> I'd see them. They'd be on display for everybody to see. So when that happens, you have two options. And, and I'm just talking about as pastor, you, husband, parent, coach, leader, business leader, you have two options. You can either acknowledge that this responsibility is far beyond your capacity or you can act like you're not weak and cover and hide and pretend to be something stronger than you are while everybody else laughs at you because they see your weakness. 
And do you know what Rehoboam chose? He chose to maintain control rather than to maintain unity. And so he tried to manipulate the people and force the people to follow him. And you know what he lost? He lost both control and unity. If you want to maintain unity, do you know what you have to do? You have to admit the responsibility is too great for you. You have to hold your kingdom with an open hand, realizing if God wants to raise up another leader, I'm fine with that. It's God's kingdom. He can do whatever he wants to. If he wants to use me, I'm, I'm, I'll show up. If he wants to use somebody else, I'll hand it over to somebody else. That's what a leader that wants to maintain unity does. He values the contribution of others. He empowers others to lead. He wants to raise up people around him that may be even stronger and smarter than he is. And if you want to maintain the unity, you have to keep the main purpose of your kingdom in front of the people. Not keep your agenda in front of the people. That's the only way you can make sure everybody's pulling on the same side of the rope. Otherwise, everybody's going to be pulling in opposite directions and the kingdom's going to be crumbling and the promise is going to be divided. This is what it looks like. And I found this awesome hieroglyphic over in Israel to bring to you. So here you have Rehoboam in the south, two tribes using one name, Judah, the northern kingdom is now going to be referred to as Israel. That's under Rehob Jeroboam. And I want you to notice the capital of the southern kingdom is Jerusalem. That's where God established the temple. That's where the place of worship was. But I want you to notice up in uh, the northern kingdom, there are kind of two capitals. Shechem, which is the official capital. But I want you to notice as far as you can go north, as far away from Jerusalem as you get, do you know what Jeroboam did? He established a second alternate place of worship. And I want you to see it here in this next sign. Notice this. A sign of your kingdom about to crumble is your family doesn't want anything to do with you or your God. That's a hard thing to say. But it's exactly what happened in this story. Skip over to verse 27. Jeroboam is talking. He is trying to gather his northern kingdom together, and this is what he says. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord. You know what he's saying? Everybody in Israel was required to go to Jerusalem once a year to worship. And Jeroboam says, if that happens, their heart is always going to be loyal to Rehoboam. So we can't let that happen. So you know what he does? He prevents them from going to the place of worship. He sets up a second alternate temple. And it says at the end of verse 27, King Rehoboam of Judah, and they will kill me in return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. What were they supposed to offer as sacrifices in Jerusalem? Lambs. Remember that? And yet, what does he choose to make the sacrifices in the substitute temple? Bulls, calves, the equivalent of a McDonald's Happy Meal. And he sets up this alternate place of worship, an alternate sacrifice, an alternate substitute. And he says to the people... You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods. He's pointing at the Happy Meals. These are your gods with little G's. 
O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? It wasn't that God they talk about in Jerusalem. I mean, he's a fine God if you want to be a part of the southern kingdom. But now that we're part of the northern kingdom, we have our own gods. And we're going to say these gods are just as good as those gods. And he dilutes the whole worship narrative. Why? Because he doesn't want anything to do with his former family. Why? Because he's been hurt, because he has been embittered, and because he wants to maintain control. Does that sound like any family you know of? Is that the narrative in your family? Sadly, so often we've been hurt, we've been embittered, and we not only want nothing to do with that family member, we want nothing to do with that family member's God. There's a whole generation that's been lost because they've watched their parents go through the motions of religion and yet those parents didn't love and lead those children in a way that honored God and endeared their fellowship. And if you want to be the kind of parents that point to a God that your children actually love, you have to model it You have to humble yourself. You have to admit when you're wrong. And you have to do things for the purpose of maintaining unity, not just maintaining control. Here's the last sign. And this is good news. That was heavy. Here's good news. Oh, by the way, I wanted to show you this place. I took this picture. This is in Israel. Do you remember when I told you about Dan? Oh, I didn't read the rest of the verse. That's why I didn't get the picture. Look here at verse 29. Verse 29, where'd all this happen? Where'd all this worship happen? And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. This thing became a sin for the people as far as Dan to go before the one. So there's actually this geographical place called Dan. It was actually named after one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the 10 tribes that broke off in the northern kingdom. And we went to this place. And when we got to this place... Israel became 3D. Bible became 3D for me. And part of the reason is our tour guide, whose name was Pilar, she was a wonderful Jewish converted Messianic Jew. She loved Jesus, but she, had, she knew the stories of her people, the Hebrew people and the Old Testament people. And when we got to this site and she's telling us what took place at this site, that had been dug up and uncovered. What what I was looking at is what Jeroboam built in Dan as the place of alternate worship. This is where they brought those bulls and they sacrificed them to their foreign gods. And it became a place of idolatry. And as Pilar was telling this story, even though she told it a hundred times, she was moved. In her emotion, I'll never forget, she said, this is the place where it all began to unravel. And the kingdom became divided and you crested the hill and it is all a spiral out of control through the rest of the Old Testament. And you know what I thought? I thought, who's Jeroboam? What story is this? Why don't I know this story? Why am I not moved like you're moved? And so I had to come, I had to dig into all of this. And when I did, 
I began to hate man-made religion and idol worship more than I ever had before. And that is the cornerstone of the whole Epic series, series is when she was showing me this. I said, I, I got to bring this. Do you even know this story? I've never even heard a sermon preached on these passages before. We have got to make sure that we don't allow our kingdoms to crumble. But by doing the dumb stuff that the wisest man on the planet did at the time, we've got to protect the place of worship. We can't allow our hearts to become divided so the kingdom won't become divided. And this cannot happen to the people that worship Christ and Christ alone. Here's the last sign. Your kingdom is about to crumble. You're ready to serve a better king. Aren't you disgusted with King Solomon at this point? Aren't you disgusted with Rehoboam and Jeroboam? And it's like, why can't we have a better king? Look at me. That's exactly the reason this story is in the Old Testament. You read through this stuff and you say, why can't they get it right? And that's what you should be longing for. A true and better king. I want you to look, go back one chapter, chapter 11, and I want you to look at a little phrase found in verse 39. God told them if they worshiped other gods, the kingdom would be divided, the kingdom would crumble. And this is where he says it in verse 39. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this. But then look at the last little phrase. But not forever. There's this little hint that something good is going to come out of this. There's going to be a point where God's kingdom will be reestablished. You see, when Rehoboam and Jeroboam did this, they invited the judgment of God. And do you know what happened? About 150 years after this, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Jeroboam. And in the year 722 before Christ, 722 years before Christ, the northern kingdom was destroyed as an act of God's judgment by the Assyrians. About 150 years after that, the Babylonians attacked the southern kingdom and destroyed it, took captive the exiles in the Babylon and destroyed the southern kingdom. There was a little mini revival, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks. But for the most part, the whole kingdom fell apart. The kingdom crumbled. And then for 400 years, from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, there is absolute silence. There is no sign of genuine, heartfelt worship going on in Israel. And then we open the pages of the New Testament. We get to one of the first books, the Gospel of Mark, which is a biography of Jesus. And in the Gospel of Mark, the first recorded words of King Jesus are these. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, because I am here, the kingdom is here. Because, fellas, I'm the true and better king. You don't have to keep trusting in the Solomons and the Davids and the Rehoboams and the Jeroboams that never seem to get it right, that always have their hearts divided, that love other loves and worship other gods. Jesus is here and he says, guys, you've got a choice. 
You have to respond to this kingdom. And here's your response. Repent. Repent of your idol worship. Repent of loving other loves. And believe the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is this. Not only is Jesus the true and the better king, he's the true and the better sacrifice. He's the only thing that will satisfy your heart. He's the only thing that will fill the hole in your heart. He is satisfying. He is beautiful. Worship him and him alone. That's what Jesus said. And we go all the way through the New Testament till we get to the last pages of our Bibles. And do you know what we read? There was an angel in heaven one day that was announcing this. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Jesus is King. My question to you is this. How's your kingdom doing? Are you ready to admit your kingdom is crumbling? That you love other loves, that you worship other gods, that you are prone to idolatry and you need a better king than yourself? Why don't you bring yourself and put yourself under the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ, making sure you walk out of here knowing that you are a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. Do you know it? Do you know it? Here's one of my burdens for you. So many of you come, you love coming to this place, you take the notes, you sing the songs, and you feel better walking out of here, but you are not absolutely certain that if you died right now, you would be with Christ in His kingdom. You hope so. You feel like I've done, I'm trying to do everything I can. Listen, it is not about everything you can do, it's everything that He has done. Have you surrendered to Jesus Christ as King? And listen, publicly declared that in baptism. This afternoon, we're going to the lake. The lake has a camp. We can baptize you if you're willing to admit, my kingdom's not working. I'm tired of being king. I'm choosing Jesus as king. I want the world to know it. Baptize me right now as a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you done that? If you've not done that, it doesn't matter how many times you cycle in and out of this place. It does no good unless you repent gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's your response? I want you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. If you've never received Christ by faith, if you've never surrendered your life to King Jesus, would you do that right now in your heart of hearts? All you have to do is to admit, Father, I have loved other loves. I've tried to fill the hole in my heart with sinful things. And all that's gotten me is a crumbling kingdom. And I'm ready to surrender to your kingship in my life. And I want the world to know it. Give me the courage to publicly declare you as king, to never be ashamed of you. you've done that today at the end of our service there's going to be pastors standing here ready to receive you we would love the opportunity to baptize you as a follower of Jesus Christ this afternoon in that lake you say I don't know what to say I don't know what to do we'll help you with all of that every born again follower of Jesus Christ has done what you're doing in publicly 
faith in Christ. Don't put it off. There's no guarantee you're going to have another chance. Give Him your heart. Bow to Him as King. Publicly declare that through baptism. Father, I want to thank You for the clarity of Your Word. Would You produce faith in hearts that have heard it today and give courage to those that need to go on record that You are King. Turn our hearts back to full, complete worship of Jesus Christ and Him alone. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's sing our response to the Lord.